Now as we uh, have the second of our meetings to do with the subject of the tabernacle, again tonight I don't intend particularly to get into detail. Uh, Last evening we looked at the provision for it, how the materials all uh, were provided. We looked at the preparation of it and we looked at the preservation of it. And uh, in looking at those things, we were seeing pictures of how in the provision for the tabernacle, uh, the truth of Romans 12 is before us. It was was those who had a a deep appreciation of the goodness of God to them in redemption, who out of a willing and a full heart, gave the materials that they had for the tabernacle. Uh, When we looked at the uh, thought of the preparation of it, we were then looking to see how the Spirit of God supernaturally enabled Aholiab and Bezalel to do what they couldn't have done before. And we saw there a picture of the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, those initial uh, so-called charismatic supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, so that in the earliest days of the church, the church in its infancy, it could function. And as soon as the full revelation of church truth had been given through the apostle, uh, then that which was only temporary and only partial, it simply vanished away, and now we look to the word of God alone for our authority. But we found too that that which had been provided for and prepared, uh, it was going to be preserved, it had to function, it was uh, not just a monument, but it was um, a structure that was going to be involved in work. And uh, for that purpose, uh, God in Numbers chapter 3 said to Moses, Now bring the tribe of Levi near, and I'm going to give that tribe to Aaron and his sons, and they are going to have charge of the tabernacle and the instruments of the tabernacle. And uh, we noted that it was wonderful God should ever choose the tribe of Levi at all. By nature they were cruel people, Levi... Uh, and his brother Simeon cruel men, angry men instruments of cruelty in their habitation and yet they were put in charge of the instruments of the house of God and it's wonderful what grace can do and uh, those men, the Levites therefore worked with the priesthood in the functioning of the house we noted that there were three sons they were associated with uh, things that were outward concerning the tabernacle things that were inward, that were particularly precious and spoke expressly of Christ and there were those involved in the carrying and the care of the structure of the tabernacle and we thought we saw there a picture of the functions of the evangelist and the pastor and the teacher of Ephesians chapter 4 now to this evening, again, more just by way of general background uh, I want to think with you not so much about those things but now about the position of things Uh, how things were positioned in the tabernacle and then God willing tomorrow and subsequent evenings we'll think about the purpose of them all now that is the full extent of my alliterative capability as our dear brother John Riddle would have said it's a a nice little bunch of sweet peas and uh, beyond that I cannot go but anyway that will be enough to keep us going and uh, so uh, what we want to do this evening is think about the, the position of things but, but it, 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 what I would like to do as the Lord gives help is really walk us through the tabernacle uh, so that you have um, I think each of you will have uh, an A4 
uh, piece of paper with the most rudimentary of diagrams on it I, I appreciate that with an audience like this almost certainly it's there in your mind already uh, so I'm not uh, insulting your intelligence please um, it's there as a little Ed memoir and for all we know there might be somebody here this evening or comes to the meetings for whom this is all new uh, so at least you can make a few notes on it or whatever but um, <clears throat> you've got the 2D plan there we just want to begin uh, to walk through and keep certain things in mind so that with that general background we can look at the purpose of specific things over the next evenings in the will of the Lord. So we're going to read the scriptures first, of course, and, and we're going to do that in the letter uh, to the Hebrews, please. We're going to turn to Hebrews in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and we'll read at verse 1 now of the things which we have spoken this is the sum we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern show to thee in the mount the example and shadow of heavenly things the beginning of verse 5 chapter 9 and verse 1 <clears throat> then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary for there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was the lampstand and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary and after the second veil the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly and we trust God will bless to us the reading of his good word and uh, <clears throat> most of you if not all will have noted or know that as you go through these verses particularly in Hebrews chapter 9 there seems to be a discrepancy uh, particularly as to the place of the golden altar which we'll deal with in a little detail later in the week God willing and uh, you'll notice that as the description is being given of the tabernacle uh, that what is in mind is purely the tented structure that sat within the court there's no, no reference made here to the, the court of the uh, tabernacle but verse 2 simply says there was a tabernacle made 
The first, the first part of which, the first compartment of which, uh, was the place of the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And you'll see that on the little uh, diagram that you have, the first part of the tabernacle itself, the tented structure, is what is called the sanctuary. And then after the second veil, now you'll notice that we have used the words of, not Hebrews, but Exodus, on the diagram to distinguish between the door which is at the outer court and uh, sorry the gate at the outer court the door which was the entrance into the sanctuary and the veil which hangs between the sanctuary and the holiest of all now here the writer simply speaks about the second veil a second hanging it was a hanging structure so the gate wasn't a gate as we visualize it the door wasn't a door like the door we've come in all three were hangings. They were fabric hangings and they're called in the book of Exodus the gate, the door and the veil. And that second compartment is called, says verse 3, the holiest of all, uh, which had the golden censer. Now the idea of that is not so much that the golden censer was in there because it wasn't. The golden censer was where it is on the diagram. It's in the sanctuary. And you say, well, why does Hebrews say otherwise? I would suggest to you the thought is simply this. That in terms of its purpose, it belonged to the holiest of all. But in order to make it accessible to the priesthood, it was put in the sanctuary. Now, the detail of this we'll look at a little later in the week, God willing, when we think particularly of the events of the Day of Atonement, uh, which will deal particularly with things to do with the holiest of all. But on the Day of Atonement, suffice to say now, on the Day of Atonement, though it was God's High Priest who by divine instruction was going to go into the holiest of all, except he went in, shrouded by the smoke of incense from off that golden altar, he would have died. It was essential that he went in shrouded in the smoke of incense from off that altar now clearly if the altar had been physically positioned in the holiest of all it would have been inaccessible so he couldn't have gone in at all so God put it in the sanctuary hard up against the veil accessible to the priest the high priest so that using the golden censer he could take the coals from off the golden altar the incense, he could take it through the veil and the incense and its smoke would fill the holiest of all thus enabling him to go in without being slain. So physically located in the sanctuary as far as its purpose was concerned especially on the Day of Atonement which is the context of the Hebrew letter as far as the Day of Atonement was concerned its function belonged to the holiest of all which is why I suggest it's worded like that. We would just say before <clears throat> coming away from the Hebrew letter uh, that the letter itself probably was addressed primarily to the great company of priests who were obedient to the faith. We read about them in Acts chapter 6. And it's very evident from the start that, that the readers are expected not only to have a thorough knowledge of the Levitical system 
but really a practical knowledge of what was involved in priesthood as well. So it's very much written from that standpoint and um, we have to appreciate that, that those priests who were reading this and receiving this instruction were absolutely convinced that what they were involved with was of God. It was God ordained. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had all the authority they needed to be recognized as and function as the priests of the Lord. They could have taken you back to chapter and verse. They could have taken their lineage back probably to Levi himself. And they could say, uh, but, but here I am, I'm a priest before God. And yet now there are these people coming along who call themselves the followers of Christ and they're telling me that everything I was born into and brought up with and all my privilege and all my functions God has finished with. It's never going to happen but just think for a moment if somebody came along and stood at this desk and told you the same thing. That everything you've poured your life into and everything you believe and everything you hold dear God's finished with it. It's done. There's something new. And that's the position they were in. And that's why so much of the epistle is geared toward demonstrating to those readers that the priesthood they're involved with was only ever intended to be temporary. There was actually a priesthood that predated the priesthood that began with Aaron. And that priesthood goes right back to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18 where we first read of Melchizedek. And so the Melchizedek priesthood predated the priesthood of Aaron. The priesthood of Aaron was only ever intended to be temporary. And that's because when the contract, the law, was given at Sinai, when that contract was forged between God and the nation, it was a foregone conclusion <clears throat> that they would break the law. Now we know that from Romans chapter 8 because Romans 8 tells us what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It was impossible for them to keep the law and we might wonder therefore reverently why did God ever let them sign up to that contract? If, if in keeping it there was multiple blessing but in breaking it there was a desperate curse and if as obviously God did he knew that they couldn't keep it it meant that the curse was inevitable why would God allow them to do that and the only answer we can give is that it was all part of the progressive revelation of divine truth that ultimately in Christ salvation alone would be found a nation was going to be given the opportunity against a law given by God to uphold that law the weakness of the flesh meant that inevitably they were going to break it they were going to be under its curse and ordinarily that would have meant that God must immediately judge them but in order that that judgment did not immediately fall at the same time God was instituting the law, writing the two tables of stone, he was also giving instruction as to how there would be a system of sacrifice, the blood of which would not be able to take away the guilt of the people, but it would at least be able to cover it, so that divine judgment need not immediately fall. 
and then if there was going to be that sacrificial system there would need to be a priesthood to administer it as well so that's why the, the, the law the tabernacle the sacrifices the priesthood they all make up one great system of things which was instituted there at Sinai and under which Israel laboured for hundreds of years they finished up as a nation boasting in a law that could only condemn them they were under its curse and, and how could they ever be delivered from it the law demanded one of two things total obedience or death nothing else would satisfy the law and so Paul uh, teaching the Galatians in chapter 3 shows how that Christ having been made a curse on behalf of the nation he fulfilled all the conditions that the law demanded all the conditions of that curse were met by Christ I, I assume we would appreciate that I'm thinking we're probably all sinners of the Gentiles saved by grace who are here tonight and as sinners of the Gentiles you'll appreciate we were never under the law and we were never under its curse I know we've just sung it we've just sung it uh, you know singing about our Redeemer who delivered us from the curse but it's good to sing but it's not good doctrine so we don't take our doctrine from our hymn books we were never under the curse of the law our problem was even bigger we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel strangers to the covenants of promise without God, without hope in the world Ephesians 2 now Christ died and became the curse for Israel so that Israel could be delivered from under the curse of the law and as soon as the curse of the law was satisfied as soon as that penalty clause was met in full God could righteously terminate the contract that was made at, at Sinai and he did but it follows if he, if he terminated the contract which was the old covenant if he, if he terminated that at Calvary then it follows that the sacrificial system that was there to cope with the law being broken that sacrificial system wasn't necessary anymore and if the sacrificial system wasn't necessary anymore the priesthood who officiated over it they were not necessary anymore so coincidentally at Calvary the law as a system of things came to an end they were delivered from under its curse the old sacrificial system came to an end the Aaronic priesthood was finished with and now these dear people to whom this epistle was written have to understand that they've been brought into a far higher order of things and it's to do with in these chapters the true tabernacle not the tabernacle that was built by men says the writer but the true tabernacle the one in the heavens which the Lord pitched and not man so the great truth of partly of, of Hebrews 8 and 9 <clears throat> is that that Old Testament tabernacle which we're thinking about in these meetings was itself a picture not just of things for us in the church today but it was actually a facsimile it was a, it was a representation of things in the heavens themselves 
So that which Moses saw in those 40 days and nights in the mount, the things which he saw in the heavens, he didn't replicate them. This model here is not a replication of something in heaven. There isn't a tent structure in heaven. It's not a replication of it. But it's a representation of it. That that in these things, a heavenly order of things, which existed then and which exists now, is here represented on earth. Sometimes you might have heard brethren say, now we don't get much uh, in the Bible about heaven. But actually we do. At least if we take the 50 chapters that distinctly deal with the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is representative of things in heaven, therefore we were learning an awful lot about heaven when we're learning about the tabernacle. So uh, more of this, God willing, on Thursday evening, when we think in the last book of the Bible about the time when the tabernacle of God will be with men. But that will be more than of that heavenly order of things. So, the point being, as we move through in our thought this evening, move through the structure of the tabernacle, um, we're not making light of studying the detail, the significance of the number of pillars and the way they were made up and the order of them. And You know, it's very easy just to get absorbed with, with, with detail like that. And, and miss the bigger picture of the whole thing. So, let's just summarise. As we step up to what the book of Exodus calls the gate, uh, about a 30 foot stretch of that uh, fabric fencing that went around the court of the tabernacle, as we step up to that gate, we're going to enter into an order of things and a system of things which for Israel historically was purely functional they didn't know the meaning of any of this that we're talking about they just simply didn't know it was just where their religious centre was it was where the sacrificial system was centred it was totally inadequate for the task one of the reasons why it was necessary one day in the year to have a day of atonement because there was one altar it's the first thing we come to as we go into the outer court an altar seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet it's not very big there would be uh, the morning burnt offering upon it slowly burning take most of the day probably for that sacrifice to be consumed then there's going to be an evening sacrifice put upon it one altar and that one altar has got to serve in the region of two million people you don't have to think very hard and long to realise that the whole system was utterly, totally inadequate it wasn't big enough the sacrifices that were offered the blood of them could never take away sins the priesthood had no idea really of what they were doing I'm not being rude it's just they didn't know they had a ritual and they didn't have to decide in the morning uh, what will I do today there was a set ritual and they just did it Um, they were not intelligent as to its meaning there was a high priest who couldn't continue by reason of death the whole thing was temporary, partial, inadequate 
Are we being rude and disrespectful about the divine institution? No, not at all. Not at all. It was that very temporary nature of it. It was the very inadequacy of it that was all intended ultimately to highlight the greatness of the person and work of Christ. And yet in it, we can learn lessons about our position today as believers, enjoying fellowship with God. Much truth we can learn about the local assembly because the principles of God's house then are exactly the same as the principles of his house now. The practices are different, but the principles are the same. And also, wonderfully, we're learning about an order of things in the heavens. Depending on when the tabernacle last moved, because it was built as a mobile structure, and uh, a lot of the detail of that you'll find in the early chapters of the book of Numbers, chapter 3 onwards, you'll find how that the sons of Levi... Uh, Gershon, Kohath, Merari responsible for different aspects uh, and different parts of the tabernacle uh, in a very very wonderful way uh, those men in a very orderly and disciplined way would have packed everything up transported it and then unpacked it all and built it all again now depending on when they last did that as we come through that gate into the outer court and we approach the brazen altar if it had been there for more than a few days the ground would have been simply saturated in blood it's not a very attractive prospect is it it's one of the reasons why beyond the brazen altar there would be the necessity of a laver at which the priests practically could wash they would wash their hands and their feet at least uh, before they moved on uh, to carry out their service in the actual tented structure of the tabernacle. So, so to come through that gate, uh, it's, it's pure whiteness, reminding us of the pure righteousness of God, the righteous ground upon which we must approach him. And then suddenly to be confronted with this smoke-blackened, blood-stained altar, standing on blood-soaked ground, and there's absolutely nothing there to appeal to the natural man, is there? It must have been like that in Genesis chapter 4. Although we don't read of an altar in Genesis 4, the first altar in Scripture is not until Genesis 9, the altar that Noah built. But there must have been a place in Genesis 4 where both Cain and Abel offered. And assuming that in the days of Cain and Abel, God signified his acceptance of an offering by fire coming from heaven to consume it then I think we are probably qualified to think that the place where Abel offered likewise would have been stained by blood blackened by smoke fire judgment blood death nothing attractive to the human mind about those things is there and yet that's our first point of call as we move into the tabernacle structure shortly we're going to come across things that are tremendously beautiful to look upon but they're not here in the outer court the outer court is exposed to the elements and there's fire and there's smoke and there's blood and there's death and therefore we're solemnly reminded that the first steps we take 
as we move toward this uh, functioning house for God where we are going to be able to enjoy fellowship with him where God's purpose will be fulfilled that I might dwell with them we're reminded that it has to start with Calvary it has to start with divine judgment it has to start with one who fulfilled all the lovely types of the offerings of Leviticus chapters 1 to 7 not just the sweet savour offerings what he was in his death to God but also those offerings for sin as he dealt with the sin question in order that the way might be open for men ever to have fellowship with God perhaps more of the altar through the week uh, we just want to move on to the labour and um, it's in one sense one of the most intriguing and frustrating items of furniture in the, in the seven that are there in the tabernacle most illustrations I think Ian might be going to surprise me with a, an illustration about this but most illustrations that you will see in commentaries or books uh, show a thing like a big bowl huge finger bowl so it's not the fingers it's for feet and hands now clearly it cannot be that it cannot be that because the first priest to put his hands or his feet in the thing is going to pollute it all so it has to be some kind of reservoir of water and um, it would have to come at a sufficient flow rate for the water the whole thought of the laver of course the French have adopted the word for to wash, laver means to wash but the thought you see is it's not so much the vigour of a man washing his hands it's the thought of the force of the water doing the work the water does the work so the very fact that there is a complete absence of detail as to the size of the laver the look of the laver the way it worked was it like a solar still where did the water come from how was it topped up how was it dispensed was it that Levites stood there and they had different uh, utensils to, to bring out water and pour it we simply do not know and the fact that we don't know means the spirit of God doesn't intend us to know and so that in itself teaches a lesson because it says that for some of the things in the tabernacle we're not to be involved with the detail of the whole thing but we're to take the principle of the thing that there was a great need for cleanliness and for cleansing and for purification some have suggested that in the three compartments of the tabernacle uh, the outer court, the sanctuary, the holiest of all that if we were to stand back uh, and look at the whole place as that which brings us into fellowship with God the suggestion would be that in the outer court we see what Christ was for us when we were sinners he met us in our need the altar, blood and water then when we look at the sanctuary we find what, how Christ meets our need presently and then when we look at the holiest of all we find what Christ was for God in his sacrifice what he was for the sinner in the outer court what he is for the saint in the sanctuary and what he was for God in the holiest of all some nice truth in that the point is when we come to the labour other than knowing that there was one 
We don't know anything else. But then when we proceed past the lever and we come to the actual tented structure itself, we're faced with the, the door. That which would allow us into the sanctuary, and it's a very heavy drape, it's a very heavy hanging, it's made of fine linen, and um, it's got blue and purple and scarlet all woven into it, very beautiful needlework. In fact, the, the intricacy of the needlework is reflected in the truth of Psalm 139. Remember that lovely psalm where the psalmist, speaking of the greatness of God, he, he tells us first about God's omniscience. Thou knowest my down sitting, my uprising. Thou knowest every thought. Uh, he speaks of God's omnipresence. Even if I go into the depths of hell, thou art there. Though I go into the uttermost parts of the sea, even there. And then, of course, he's going to speak about God's omnipotence. What's he going to tell us about? Space? The vastness of the universe? No, 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 no. He takes us into the silence of the womb. Shows us a child being formed. And when he speaks about being curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, it's the same expression as is used in the intricacy of the needlework in the heavy hangings of the tabernacle. You imagine how intricately we have been wrought. The way in which the nervous system uh, and the thousands, literally thousands of miles of blood vessels that are there in a baby's body. How they're all interlaced and none of them collide and how they're all wonderfully formed in their different layers and all that intricacy with which a child is formed in the womb is the word used for the needlework of these hangings. They must have been splendid. It must have been wonderful. In fact, it was clearly beyond. Many of our dear sisters are capable of some very, very beautiful needlework. But this was above and beyond because it still needed the Spirit of God to enable a holy and Bezalel and men like them to be able to do this. So this was something beyond the natural. It must have been beautiful to look upon. And of course, because it's a heavy hanging, the moment we move beyond the door and we come into the sanctuary, as that heavy drape folds behind us, the change is instantaneous. I really wonder if the priests ever became so familiar with it that they lost the wonder of it. The only thing that they had in common with outside was the ground. They stood on the dirt, the dust of the wilderness. But everything else was remarkably different. Maybe, <clears throat> what would be the first thing to impress the senses? Maybe the fact that all the hubbub and the racket and the din of the outer court, beasts all queued up, waiting to be slaughtered. They weren't all sheep. Sheep don't protest. They're not spooked by the smell of blood or the sight of blood. The cattle are. And there's a, probably a lot of cattle in and around the outer court and they don't want to be there. And there'll be an awful lot of noise. And there's the sounds and there's the smells and there's the smoke. And the moment you come into the sanctuary, it's all gone. It's all shut out. Stillness, 
as our eyes become accustomed to things we would notice across here on our left hand side which is the south side of the thing there's that lampstand and uh, curiously it would seem its purpose was not to illuminate the sanctuary we might think it was but the Bible says that the purpose of the lampstand was to cast light over against itself that's curious because particularly again the dear ladies homemakers uh, they might decide well I want a little lamp in that corner of the room I, I want a lamp in the hallway here and the purpose is to shed light to highlight something to generally illuminate I doubt that any of you have ever bought a lamp whose purpose is purely to illuminate itself but that's what this lampstand does the intriguing purpose of it we, we're deliberately going to hold back we're going to wait until tomorrow evening God willing subsequent evenings to talk about the purpose of these things we're looking at the position of them at the moment a lampstand its main purpose is to cast light over against itself but um, it would be shedding light up the side of course of the sanctuary again the beautiful needlework we notice that a lot of angels are involved in all of this feathers and angels all curiously wrought into this the gold of the lampstand itself very intricate and, and where we know virtually nothing about the labour we're given a, a tremendous lot of detail about the lampstand again we'll need to wonder about that in the course of our studies from the olive oil that is burning in the lampstand there would be a faint odour as olive oil burns it gives off an odour it's not unpleasant it's quite strong actually sometimes so, so there would be, uh, be some sort of odour coming off from the lampstand but then I wonder if we move slightly away from the lampstand and, and we turned our attention to this table that's sitting on our right the northern end of the sanctuary I wonder if the faint smell of the oil from the lampstand might be overtaken by the smell of the fresh bread that's on the table here they say, I understand, we've never tried it but if you're selling your house and you've got folk coming in is it fresh coffee and fresh bread isn't it you're supposed to have something like that you know the smell just really, I don't know, it just seems to delight people See, the wonder of that bread we're going to have to spend some time thinking about that table because the loaves that are on it are put there on the Sabbath day I don't know if you've ever eaten bread in the, in the Middle East um, <clears throat> but it doesn't in any way have the kind of preservatives and texture and things that, that the bread does usually in this country um, in my early secular days I, I worked for some time out in Iran uh, and uh, just outside of Tehran itself and in the morning it was good to go to a little baker who, who brought fresh bread out of a tandoor a, a, a clay oven set into a wall and he'd bring that fresh bread out and it was, it was kind of corrugated a bit like the sort of corrugated roofing that you get you know that sort of shape uh, and that would come out and he'd wrap it in a bit of newspaper and I, I couldn't wait and you know, on the transport going through to the airport would just be picking at this and pulling out a beautiful very very tasty 
leave it for an hour or so you could eat it but it wasn't anything like as nice leave it until lunchtime and you could have fixed your roof with it I mean, it just you, you wouldn't have been able to break it it was just so so hard which is why they baked six seven eight times a day and you only got the bread fresh now here is bread on the table of showbread and it's going to be there for a week it's put there one sabbath and on the following sabbath the priests will come in and they will replace those 12 loaves with another 12 loaves and the 12 loaves they take off the table are going to be their food they're going to feed on them and I can tell you this God would never have his priestly men feed on stale bread never so that bread was kept perpetually fresh a miraculous thing so as, as you went into the sanctuary besides any smell from the lampstand and the, the olive oil there would be the smell of fresh bread coming from the table of showbread it had frankincense on it as well which has its own distinct fragrance but then probably if we move between those two kept the lampstand to our left the table to our right and we approach the golden altar why those two odours would be eclipsed because there's a fragrance coming off that golden altar which is totally unique absolutely unique in fact when you read of its constitution in Exodus chapter 30 when God declares what the ingredients will be what the proportions will be and how it will all be blended together God said on pain of death you make this for yourself on pain of death you use this for any other purpose this is mine this is for me my recipe for the incense that will be burned on a slow fire on the golden altar and the priests would smell that and you've heard brethren explain and describe how that as those priestly men went about their duties in the sanctuary unwittingly their hair, their beards, their clothing was becoming permeated with the fragrances that were associated with the sanctuary of God and when their duties were complete trimming the lamp, replacing the loaves seeing to the fire on the altar of incense whatever it was when their duty was complete and they went back out through that door and they went back through the outer court and they went back into the encampments of the people of God those people who had never been in the sanctuary themselves for they weren't priests would have immediately caught the fragrance as the priestly man walked by and they would know that that was a man who had been in the presence of God what a lovely picture of a saint who dwells close to the Lord and you've known them and I've known them and we, we covet it we would like to be like them those dear saints and there's just something very special and very godly about them there's something about the fragrance of the sanctuary that goes with them but then I wonder whether the whole assault no not assault that's no that's the wrong word because that seems a violent thing the whole effect upon the sensory systems of that priest who went in it would all pale into insignificance I suggest when he looked up at that veil because that veil which separated between the sanctuary and the holiest of all and beyond which he could not go as a priest 
That lovely veil was made of the fine linen and all this beautiful weaving of blue and purple and scarlet. It's lovely how that order never changes, isn't it? Out of all the times it's mentioned in Scripture, it never ever varies. And it's marvellous how the Spirit of God takes three colours and using just three colours that we can all understand, he teaches us about the infinite. Even ask a child, what would blue speak to you about? And they'd say, heaven, the sky, a lovely blue sky. It's the heavenly colour. And so it is. And so we, we think of the man whose origin, whose native environment is heaven. And then we think of the scarlet. We will just leap over the purple for the moment. We think of the scarlet and we think of the glory of man. Now it's at this point usually that particularly younger people tend to switch off and they think, what is this old brother on about? You know, how is this... Why does Scarlet speak of the colour of man? But, of course, nobody asks the question, and very often the man doesn't explain it. But hopefully this man will, or try to anyway. You see, the first man that ever was made, I suppose today, a younger generation would have said his name was quite cool. We call him Adam. But that means red. Red. Adam means red. He was called Adam because the dust of the earth from which he was made was red. The area of the country I was brought up in, uh, down in the west country of England, the soil is very, very red. Indeed, it's kind of brick red. Uh, and so that was the man's name. So if you met Adam today and said, what's your name? And he said, red. People would think that's quite a cool name. But anyway, that's, that's man, red. And of course, scarlet is, it is one of the most vibrant shades or forms of red that you'll ever see so that's why we would suggest that the scarlet is not just the colour of man it's the glory of man so we think of one whose origin is in heaven but who was a real man here on earth a glorious man it's wonderful to think that the Lord Jesus in coming into time we often speak about him veiling the glory of deity in flesh and so he did uh, every attribute of deity still resided in Christ and yet it was all clothed in flesh so that God is incarnate and though possessed of every attribute of deity though he has clothed in flesh the glory of deity he veiled himself again because the Lord Jesus as a sinless man would otherwise have appeared as Adam did at the beginning and Adam at the beginning was a glorious creature and the end of Genesis 2 explains to us he didn't need any clothing because he was a glorious creature they were naked the man and the woman says the end of Genesis 2 but they were not ashamed and the reason they were not ashamed is because they were clothed in glory. Glory and shame are opposites. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's put there a few times in that order. So at the end of Genesis 2, Adam is clothed in glory. He's not ashamed at the fact he's got no artificial clothing, doesn't need it. 
As soon as he sins in chapter 3, that glory disappears. Which is what Paul is teaching in Romans 3. For all have sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, you sinned, I sinned. For uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory that God intended man to display, man does not display. But the Lord Jesus, had he simply clothed the glory of deity in humanity, he would have appeared as Adam did before Adam sinned. So he clothed the glory of humanity as well. Romans 8 says that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't have sinful flesh, he was pure. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, so he appeared as any other man, a fallen man. He appeared as any other, any fallen man, though he himself is pure and sinless. Isn't it wonderful? The extent to which the Lord humbled himself, veiling the glory of deity, veiling the glory of humanity, living here humbly as a man. Now, we've got the blue, the heavenly. We've got the scarlet, the earthly. The other colour is the purple, isn't it? And if you take the two and you mix them, that's what you get. You mix blue and scarlet, you get purple. And what the Spirit of God is teaching us is that is that you can distinguish between the heavenly and the earthly. You can't divide them. The Lord didn't do things as God and then do other things as man when he was here. He was indivisibly God manifest in flesh. And as surely as when you blend blue and scarlet into purple, as surely as you cannot tell where one begins and the other ends. They just blend seamlessly, perfectly, in that colour of sovereignty. It's teaching us that we can't divide the person of Christ, though we can distinguish things concerning him. And that veil is completely full of weaving and intricate needlework of blue and purple and scarlet. But I think the great thing is this, as we finish. Beyond the veil is the holiest of all. Beyond the veil, between the outstretched wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat, God said, that's the place where I will meet with you. That's where I will presence myself with you. Uh, now, of course, as David said when he prayed at the inauguration of Solomon's temple, he said, we recognize the heaven of heavens can't contain God much less this house that we have built. So no, it wasn't a question of that. It was more the fact that, that God put a representative glory there in the holiest of all, and it shone out a, a, a glory that, that were it not diffused through that smoke of incense, the high priest would have been slain. Now can you imagine, heavy and thick though it was, can you imagine how that veil would have appeared when it was backlit by the glory of God? That as the priest looked at that veil, it wasn't that he could barely make out the detail in the puny light of a little lampstand. It was being back, 
lit by the glory of God and all the wonderful detail of it was being brought into relief. It must have been absolutely marvellous to look upon and I wonder if you ever got used to it. Let me just read to you as we finish what Paul says. You know it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Paul speaks of God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of God shining through that veil bringing it all into beautiful relief and thus God displays his glory in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and as we stand as it were in the sanctuary we haven't made it into the holiest of all that's the beauty of having a night or two ahead of us God willing but as we stand in the sanctuary surrounded by things that overwhelm the senses the silence the odours of the oil the bread the incense but the sight the glory of God shining through that veil and bringing all that beautiful colour and detail into relief it must have been a wonderful thing for those priests to have stood there and witnessed that and knowing the kind of creatures we are you can see how in the Hebrew epistle because they were so familiar with things that literally overwhelmed the senses you can see how difficult it was for them to cast all that aside and learn that the greater thing isn't perceived by the senses at all it's received by faith and it's understood in the heart and if we were in their sandals we would have had just the same difficulty and more of seeing that God had finished with everything that was sensual under the old system and now everything is precious and spiritual and of far more eternal value than those things that were ever practiced upon earth but if that were beautiful in the sanctuary and it must have been how much more precious for you and I who can enter into these things spiritually with an understanding that the priest who stood there overwhelmed he was overwhelmed in what he saw and smelt but he didn't understand it it meant nothing to him although we don't have that experience thank God we do have the knowledge now from the word of God of some of the things of which these things speak so having looked very generally at how the tabernacle was provided for how it was prepared how it was preserved and the position of things God willing we want to go into the purpose of it all with meetings starting tomorrow evening in his will thank you for being here shall we pray